Thank you for tuning in to Adversity University and welcome to class. Hey everyone, it's Sean and I need to give a big shout out to my new roommate here down in Knoxville, Tennessee, Colton Hefley, or later in the interview, you'll hear him referred to as Hef. He helped us get this guest today and they played college hockey together in Canada. And as you'll hear in the podcast, our guest today went on to pursue bobsled or bobsleigh because they're interchangeable and had a really cool conversation with him about, you know, his very unique journey. And I, I didn't know that it was even, you know, an option, but I guess, you know, athletes kind of nearing the end of whatever sport they're in can go to an open tryout, at least in Canada and just kind of show, you know, your speed, your jump, your, your power. And there's recruiters for these types of sports like bobsled and things like that, you know, speed skating, things that you traditionally wouldn't get into as a kid. And it's really cool to see how a skill set can translate like that. You know, he spent his whole life lifting for hockey and, you know, running, jumping to try and be the best hockey player he can be. And, you know, now he's taking those skills to another sport and hopefully he makes that Olympic team here next year. Uh, Garrett, what do you think about today's interview? First of all, if you're a fan of the Olympics, everyone's seen bobsledding and we all have a lot of questions about how it's done and all the training and everything that goes into it. So you're going to want to listen to this one because we dive into some pretty cool details um, that the average Joe wouldn't know. But what a great guy, very well spoken. Uh, I enjoy talking to him and, you know, uh, getting to interview him about the process. And I know we've touched on it before, but, uh, you know, we talk about mental health and uh, I love the way that it's going. And he was kind of when, when he got involved with that and started talking to uh, people, it was during a time where, um, you know, mental health wasn't big. So, you know, there was a lot of positives that come from that. And, uh, you know, also you'll hear he kind of sticks it to the man a little bit. So kind of a guy that uh, has a little bit of some balls. And uh, I really respect his story and, and what he did and uh, where he's going. Yeah, and I think this is an interview that kind of, you know, perfectly sums up what we're trying to accomplish here. And it's, you know, it's a light interview. There's some jokes. Like you said, he's really well-spoken. We were just talking to him a little bit before we started recording. And I could just tell, you know, he, he's a cool guy, laid back, really smart. And, but he's also has that chip on his shoulder, like you said. And I think that, you know, everyone has a chip on their shoulder. You just have to realize those things that were putting you down and, you know, what your reasons are, what your why is for why you pursue the things you do. And like you said, it was cool how he, how he stuck it to the man. And um, he had a quote there in the, in the interview, it's better to be at the bottom of a ladder you want to climb than halfway up one you don't want to climb. And I think that's something that's important too, because if you realize you're not happy doing what you're doing, you can't stay just because of the time you put into it. You got you to gotta pursue something that's going to make you happy in life. So like he said, it's better to be at the bottom of that ladder and you're going to be way more motivated to climb up it and work hard than, you know, stuck in the middle of one that you don't even really want to reach the top. Probably going to be happier at the bottom of that ladder too than you will be at the middle of the other one. So great interview. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, really excited and let us know what you guys think. Let's kick it on over to Mike Evelyn. Finally a summer school you'll actually want to attend. 365 Performance Hockey Academy Summer School is a 10-week program for players who want to take their hockey training to the next level. The focal points of this summer school will be on character and mindset training, on and off ice development, physical literacy and athletic development, as well as nutrition, sleep, and recovery. 
During these 10 weeks, players will take part in video training and evaluation, as well as community outreach to promote character growth. 365 Performance Hockey Academy is a 10-week program starting June 7th. Registration is open now, but act fast because spots are limited. Today's guest is from Nepean, Ontario. He played junior hockey in the CCHL and then went on to play five years of college housey in Canada at Dalhousie University in Halifax. Next, he wanted to drastically change course and he is now a member of the Canadian bobsleigh team. Thank you for joining the podcast, Mike Evelyn. Hey, thanks for having me. Mike, how are you and what have you been up to during quarantine? Uh, I'm terrific. I've been back for a week. I'm camped out at the uh, the family cottage here, so we got lots of room. Been out, uh, you know, snowshoeing on the property, uh, shoveled off a little, uh, a little rink so we can skate on the lake, and uh, just been working from home, so it's been perfect. We were talking about it before, but for the guests that don't know, you just got back from Germ or yeah, Germany. So can you take us through, uh, you know, what brought you to Germany and you know your your process through that? Yeah, for sure. Um, so like every year for trying to make the bobsleigh team, you start off in Calgary. So we we flew out to Calgary and, and did a, a team tryout. A lot of that's kind of done in the gym uh, on the track, uh, you know, checking out our, our sprint time. And then we go to uh, the indoor facility in Calgary, uh, what we call the Ice House. And it's basically the the start of a bobsleigh track without the crazy roller coaster after. So you um you push a, a sled and, and they time you and, and they can evaluate you know your your ability to do the sport without doing the sport and then uh, that went well for me so I was part of the group that went on to uh to Whistler um and then we had selection races where we uh you know basically tried to choose who was going to be on which uh level of the national team based on race results and then that went really well for me too and I ended up making um Chris Springs uh, World Cup team so then after Christmas, we ended up going uh, overseas, did the whole World Cup tour. Uh, so we were in several countries. Uh, we started um, in Altenburg, Germany, uh, like out in East Germany. It's like this secluded track in the woods. Um, and then after a couple of weeks there, we went to St. Moritz, Switzerland, which is actually the, uh, the birthplace of bobsleigh and did my first uh, World Cup race there. So that was obviously really exciting to be on the big stage. Uh, after St. Moritz, it was a week there. Uh, then we did a week in Königsee, Germany, um, and then a week in uh, Innsbruck, Austria. And then we went back to uh, Altenburg, Germany for two weeks uh, for the uh, World Championships. And mentioned then we that, at home a week ago. Oh, sorry, my bad. Uh, but no, okay. mentioned that they were evaluating like who would go on what team. Do they yeah. usually try and make like a 1A, 1B to be the most competitive on all the teams? Or is there one, you know, best team that you're aiming for? Oh yeah, all, all the eggs in one basket for sure, um, as much as possible. Uh, there are two different events. So there's a, the two-man event and the four-man event. And so uh, the two-man event, sorry, the two-man event is, is something that that uh, everybody will be tested for. And it's a little bit more straightforward. You know, you're on the back of the sled, it's just you and the pilot. And then the four-man event, you know, um, there's, there's two guys on the side in addition to those guys. And you're going to have a, a load order. You know, you're going to make need to make sure your, your riding profile is is uh, nice and like uh, aerodynamic, and you need to make sure you can load with your teammates and that the sled adds up to the right weight. So there's kind of a lot more moving parts on the four man, whereas the two man's a little bit more. Um, you know, who, who can push this thing the fastest, um, just flat out with the pilot. 
And then how do they evaluate the pilot? Because you said that the evaluation is basically, you know, the beginning without the roller coaster. And I assume that totally. the pilot's job is that roller coaster. Absolutely. Yeah. So the pilot also has to be a, a top push athlete. But like you said, yeah, they have to get down that roller coaster. And that's that's a huge part of it. You know, it would be kind of like, uh, you know, ev evaluating a hockey goalie on on one skill. Um, and there's a whole lot that goes into being a hockey goalie. And, and, you know, it's a pretty big component. There's only one guy who does that job and it's a job nobody else is going to be able to do. So a bobsled pilot's a lot like that. They, they spend years training. I think Canada seems to assume it takes about four or five years to become competitive. And so they want to have a, a top push athlete with a ton of experience. So right now the two top pilots for Canada, Justin Cripps and Chris Spring, I think they've got 10 and 14 years experience respectively. And you know, there's some top competitors, they're, they're proven athletes, they've done, they've had a lot of success uh, at the top level. Um, so those guys are kind of a lock for, for their position, because there's just not a lot of people who can come and steal that job away from them. And then, you know, the, the other guys are more, you know, trying to be a bit of a racehorse and, and anybody who's, you know, athletic and powerful can, can come in and, and steal your job. This may sound dumb, but as someone that's not really, you know, that knows a lot about bobsled, how much does weight uh, factor into things like this when you talk about a two-man or a four-man team, right? Because you want to be aerodynamic, but do you want the sleigh to weigh more? Do you want it to weigh less? Yeah, you want it to be as heavy as possible. There's a weight limit. So ideally, you want to be right around that weight limit. And sometimes you'll you'll make a sacrifice um, because what happens is, is that there's a minimum sled weight of 170 kilos. Uh, for That's for the two-man. And then uh, a maximum combined sled and crew weight for the two-man of, of 390 kilos. So that's uh, that adds up to 110 per athlete if you if you had a minimum weight sled so that would kind of be the you know if you if you were building you know perfect robots to do this you would want the sled to weigh as little as possible so 170 kilos so that you can push it faster and then you would want to weigh as much as you can so that you know you get down the hill faster you know heavy heavy things uh picks up speed more than a than a little thing but there will be a trade-off because you know not everybody weighs i think that's 245 pounds so, you know, for example, when Chris Spring and I slid, we were, we were seven or eight kilos underweight, which is, which is significant. Um, and we could make up for that by, by putting weight in the sled. Um, but then there's a bit of a trade-off of, you know, how much slower are we going to push it now that it's a heavier thing that we're pushing? So typically you want to be, um, you know, if, if you're overweight, you're disqualified, so you want to have a little buffer. But I would say you'd like to be, you know, uh, two kilos underweight would be about the target. And then going back to that pilot, it's obviously, you know, pretty dangerous as a newbie to just kind of go on that track, right? So how oh, can you sure. train for that? They train for that, obviously, off the course. Like, um, Well, there's not a lot you can do in terms of learning to, to drive the thing without driving the thing. Um, you know, it's it's a little bit like trying to learn to swim. Um, you know, you could try your X's and O's, but you're going to have to get in the water at some point. Uh, so we've actually got some athletes right now who are uh, – on Canada's development team who are currently at what we call pilot school. And so they'll go, they have basically lower entrances on the track. So they'll take some old kind of beat up what we call um, pilot school sleds. So not exactly the, uh, the crown jewel. And they'll take them from, you know, corner seven uh, in Whistler at first. And once they're sort of getting the hang of that, then they'll go up to corner three and they'll start from there. And, and then they'll sort of nudge off the top and corner at, at at the top of the track and, and then they'll start pushing off the top. And so you can progress that way. But, uh, you know, even when you're going in your first time from corner seven in Whistler, I think you hit over hundred K. Oh. 
So yeah. it is a, it is a bit intense of just like, a, you know, you, you kind of got to just jump right in. Not that there's, there's quite a bit of a culture of that in, in bobsleigh that, uh, yes, this is a bit wild, but you're just going to have to do it and, and uh, swallow your nerves. Yeah, and it sounds like that's definitely something you had to do. But uh, before we get <laughs> too far into your bobsled career, um, how did you get started in hockey? Obviously a Canada boy. So was it just part of the culture or? Oh yeah, for sure. Uh, my dad had me in, I think Timbit starts at age six. So my dad had me in uh, ringette at age three um, because you can't start hockey that young. So I played ringette with the girls for a couple of years. And then as soon as I was old enough to play hockey, my dad had me in that. Uh, and it was just kind of always something that I was, I was going to be doing, uh, whether I liked it or not. And it turned out I liked it. So that was a happy accident. Yeah. Ringette's kind of a cool concept. Uh, I actually had never been exposed to it until like my senior year of college, our coach brought out a few of the discs and I was like, Oh my gosh. And the Canadian yeah. like, Oh, it's ringette. You know, it's a little disc that you kind of flip your stick the other way. Like it's just yeah. the, uh, the knob there and you kind of push it around and you can still like stick handle and all that. And yeah, it totally. a to train. I thought, <laughs> yeah, usually the, uh, the American players I've played with have, have no idea what it is, but, um, they often know what the ringette line is. So it, I always find that funny that they just accept that that's the name and, and that nobody ever questions why that's the name, but yeah, you're totally right. It's, it's just a Canadian thing. There's actually a, a girl on the, uh, on the world cup team, uh, Erica Voss for, for bobsleigh and, and she's a former uh, team Canada ringette player. And she was telling me that uh, it's just uh, Canada and Finland that have any level of uh, competitive national team. I don't think that uh, any other country can compete with those two. You know, that's crazy. And I never heard uh, Ringnet or Ringnet until uh, I started playing like junior hockey with kids who were from Canada. I've played it before, like my dad's summer hockey camps, but I never knew that it was like a legit thing for you know younger kids, especially growing up. But I think it's a great, great way to kind of get the fundamentals down in the development without really having to you know worry about stick handling a puck before you focus on skating. Totally, yeah, it's a great training tool. And you know, those Ringnet players are are exactly that. They have they have great skating ability because there's just less. Uh, the, the, I guess the baseline level of, of stick handling ability is, is, is so much higher because you're, you're attached to the ring. So it just, uh, you know, there, there's still, there's still players with, with good hands and less good hands, but everybody can, you know, nobody has a problem losing the ring, just skating up the ice. So it makes it a lot easier for kids. Yeah. And then what was your process after that? You know, everyone always plays minor hockey. Did you go on to play junior hockey before uh, playing Canadian college? And then also was division one, the end goal for you or where, where did you want to see yourself taking hockey? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I think like every other Canadian kid who was playing hockey, the, the goal was obviously to be first line team candidate at the Olympics. And then, you know, I think I was probably seven or eight when I realized I would probably be third line team candidate in the Olympics. And then, you know, 11 or 12, when it occurred to me that maybe making the NHL would be the, uh, with the, the final goal. And then by the time I was 15, I was like, all right, D division one NCAA full scholarship is the goal. And actually my, my sister is a, a really good hockey player. So she, she got a full ride scholarship to uh, Connecticut division one and played there for four years, capping the team. Um, but when I was playing junior hockey, you know, I was, I was a grinder. I was, I was hitting guys. I, I'd score occasionally. And, and uh, you know, there wasn't a lot of flash in my game. And then uh, I was kind of, you know, told to just wait it out, play until you're 20. And I didn't do a great job marking myself and, and uh, just kind of hoped that some schools would come to me. And uh, I got a couple division three offers, um, you know, for an international student, I think it would have been something like 20 K a year uh, American to play 
um, you know, for Nazareth College and, and the like. And then um, head coach of uh, Dalhousie uh, ended up coming to one of my games and, and making me an offer. And, and uh, you know, a half scholarship in Canada uh, in the East Coast, I think I was going to be paying like $4,000 a year or something like that. So uh, way more manageable and it was a good school. So I jumped on it. And uh, sorry, my, my junior hockey career, I, I would have played uh, uh, two years uh, junior A with the Nepean Raiders. And I was up and down uh, between them and, and uh, the Winchester Hawks junior B. And then I would have switched over to uh, the, the junior A senators uh, right in the heart of Ottawa and played for them for two years. I think you're spot on with, uh, you know, how sometimes those those realities set in a bit slowly. Uh, I like how you how you phrase it there. and. Uh... I also like that you, you know, you kept still reaching for that best opportunity. You know, it wasn't like, oh, I'm not going to be on Canada's Olympic team. Why am I doing this at all? Right. Like it was still, you were going to be the best player that you could be. For sure. Yeah. You just compromise a little bit, you know, you, you still want to be everything you can. Yeah. But while you're at Dalhousie, uh, you know, usually going into school as an upperclassman, you feel really good, you know, the campus, you know, all the boys, you're going to have a big role in the team. And uh, with you, your coach put you in a little bit of a, a mental blender before your junior season. Uh, can you tell us what happened there? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, um, I, I don't want to speak too ill of the coach. You know, he 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 did some great things getting me there, and, and I like him as a person. But one of the things he does is is uh, he he tries his best to attract new talent, and, and he often offers guys, uh, you know, full scholarships um, when he's seen them play, you know, one or two games in junior, um, just to get them to come to school. He has a hard time competing with with some of the top schools um, in the country or are in that AUS division. And Dalhousie has a more rigorous uh, academic expectation of, of the athletes than some of the other schools. So in order to compete, he feels he needs to um, sell the school to the athletes. And instead of having the school's uh, superior academic uh, ranking appeal to them. And so you, you get these athletes who come in, offered a full ride and, and then um, you know, he's not always thrilled with the way they play. And, and his, his plan is usually to just kind of tell those guys that, that, uh, they can kick rocks after a couple of years and then offer new guys a full ride and, and hope that they pan out better. And, uh, you know, I've talked to a few guys who, who it's happened to before me and a few guys who it's happened to since. Um, and on top of that, you know, we had a little falling out, um, over, um, you know, a scholarship and, um, and my, my academic plan, which was to be an engineer. He wanted me to be taking easier courses, taking something that, uh, you know, had me pulled away from the rink less often. Um, but I was dead set on, on taking engineering. So I was missing some practices and stuff like that. And then, uh, he had told me when I was a, a freshman that, you know, if I, if I made the academic all Canadian standard, which is uh, roughly an 80 average, uh, which wasn't easy for me, uh, in engineering, just cause it didn't come that, that easily to me. Uh, if I made that 80, 80 average, um, that I would be given more money, um, going into, into the following season. So I, I met, I, I guess I delivered on, on my side of the deal. And, and then I found out at the end of the year that I would not be getting the scholarship I thought I was getting. So he and I had a conversation about that that didn't end well. Um, but we didn't really talk about it again. Um, that was in April. And then I think he called me, um, halfway through August, two weeks to go before I went back to training camp and told me, that he was going to be cutting me. I wouldn't be playing on the team anymore, no scholarship. And then if I wanted to switch schools, I was welcome to do that. Um, and I told him, you know, it, it's two weeks till, till the season start or till, uh, till training camp starts. 
and this is school, this isn't junior hockey. So I'll, I'll see you at practice. And then uh, actually managed to play my way. Um, a, a lot of thanks to half half switched to forward that year. And uh, um, you know, he, he was a star and, and together we were, we were on the first line with a, with a rookie named uh, uh, CJ Yakimowicz and ended up having a great year. And then I ended up getting the scholarship back uh, on this, on the second semester. Yeah, it's crazy to me. And you know, the thing about college hockey is you're right. Like coaches sometimes do try and treat it like junior. Uh, whereas they think that they can kind of replace guys and, you know, still build their team. And it's like, no, you, you made a commitment to me as a player. And now I'm not just here for the sport. I'm here for my whole life. Like I'm here to get a degree and, you know, especially two weeks before the year, like you can't get into another college, <laughs> my like much less play on their team and all that. And, you know, I heard another story at, at my school was um, we had a player in a biology major and he was the only one. And so, you know, his courses conflicted with our practice schedule. And so he went in to talk to the people he's supposed to talk to that are their job is to, you know, help fix that. And, uh, you know, by the end of the conversation, uh, she goes, well, I mean, why don't you just change your major? Like, you're, like, you're not going to go to practice and do biology. And it was right. <laughs> I had the same conversation with that lady oh, it's wild. as well. And, yeah. Um, she was like, well, do you want to miss practice Monday, Wednesday or Tuesday, Thursday? And I was like, <laughs> I'm like, this is the division one team. This isn't yeah. a club team. Yeah. I can't do that. <laughs> right. I got to be there. Yeah, exactly. And they, and people just can't seem to grasp that. And, you know, they can't seem to grasp it on the other side either. You know, I had, I had some teachers, um, you know, profs in university, but even teachers um, while I was playing junior hockey and, you know, I'd explain to them, you know, is there any way I can get a, a one day extension on this assignment? You know, you, you just popped it on us and, and we got a big game tonight, you know, out of town. And, you know, I got responses like, uh, you know, why don't you do your homework on the bench between shifts? <laughs> and it's like, it just, <laughs> it just doesn't cross people's minds if they, if they haven't done both things, that, the, that you're trying to juggle something that, uh, you know, that, that requires all your attention here. And, and then later you'll put all your attention here. And it's not like, you're not actively, you know, when people talk about juggling uh, academics and, and sport. It's not about doing them at this exact same time. It's about finding time for both of those things. Hey coach, hold my pen. I got to yeah. do this problem <laughs> yeah. before I get on the ice. Good, good for you though, to tell him, you know, Hey, I'll see you at practice after he basically said that he didn't want you on the team. And you know, you guys have been talking about it, but I think it's crazy that coaches always preach like, Oh, you guys are students before athletes. And then it, it boils down to stuff like that. And that's not the only place that it happens. It happens everywhere in the country, D three division one, um, everywhere. And I think that they need to realize, um, as Sean, as I, as Sean and I have, as we've gotten older is that, you know, hockey's going to come to an end and whether we play professionally for 10 years in the NHL or in Europe or wherever, like we still got a lot of time to live. And if we don't have that college degree or we don't get it in something that we truly want to do with our lives, what's the point of wasting four years in a classroom, you know, wasting hours studying for something that you really don't want to do. It's kind of a joke. Exactly. Yeah. You got to be climbing the ladder. You want to be up. It's way better to be at the bottom of a ladder. You want to climb than, than halfway up one. You don't. So I, I think it's worth making that sacrifice. I think you said it exactly right. Like if, 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 if it's not what you want to do, then, then it's just not worth it. You got to find, find a way to try to get, you know, the degree you want at the same time as, as juggling hockey. And, you know, uh, as much as, as coaches can be pretty brutal, uh, not, not receptive and, and not understanding, I think, you know, players do such a good job of, of dealing with that and, and, and laughing about it, but, you know, still, still giving the coach, cause you know, you, you can't tell them 
to to stick it where the sun don't shine or he's not going to put you on the ice. So I think you, you learn a skill there that that you get to take forward in life. And it just makes you, you know, if, if you have a, a, a tough boss after after you finish hockey, like, you know, a tough boss is nothing like do your worst because I've seen expectations that are way more unreasonable than what you're asking me to do. Yeah. And I, I was going to ask, like, were, were things uncomfortable after that conversation? And, you know, obviously you made your way up to the first line. So obviously, you know, balls in your court at that point. But at the beginning of the season there, how did you handle still going about your business in, in a place that you were told you were unwanted? Yeah, you know, um, I I kind of told myself it was going to be hard. And then, you know, there were just little things that you didn't expect, I guess, that were harder than like I, I knew I was going to have to come out there uh, with a vengeance and and play like those guys weren't my teammates and every practice was going to have to be max effort. And, and that wasn't difficult, but what was difficult was, you know, coming in and, and, and your, you know, your name tag's not on your stall anymore and, and you got to get dressed in a different room and, you know, got, you know, rookies are asking who's that guy because he's not, you know, in the room when everybody else is getting ready, he's just on the ice and, you know, you just uh, little things that make you feel like you're not part of the team anymore. And, and uh, I tried to use that as, you know, fuel for, you know, missing it bad enough that I, I really want to be back. And, uh, you know, I think I was a little bit lucky being probably the, the third or fourth guy that that happened to with this coach. And I had seen the guys who, who rolled over and, and called it quits. And, you know, they, they weren't happy. They had, they had some regrets and, you know, other guys who, who fought for it. And, you know, even uh, one guy who fought for it and, and didn't end up making it. But, you know, he just the way he held himself, he knew, he knew that, you know, he, he did what he could and, and that he had put his best foot forward and, and he didn't have regrets. So that helped me a lot. Yeah, I think that'd be the biggest thing is just not, you know, living with the regret every day. And it, it brings me back to a player that I had on my team in my previous school. And it was weird because, you know, he was in a similar situation where the coaches were kind of like, hey, like you're probably not going to play a, a lot here. So if you want to see out other options, like we're more than willing to help you out. Um, and, you know, good on him. He stuck with it. Same same reasons. Want to continue school. He liked the guys. Um, but he kind of mailed it in in practice and didn't really help his own case uh, where he didn't really try a whole lot, whereas if he would have, he may have gotten more opportunity. So good on you for learning from, you know, the people in the past and their experiences and going about it with the right mindset. Because, you know, in that situation, it's really e easy to mail it in and say, screw this and, uh, you know, look at it from a negative light. But you you turn it into a positive and, and it clearly worked out for you. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. That, that's totally it. You know, it's, it's about mindset and, and then it, you know, once, once you have a little bit of success, it, it, it gets it that much easier to, to double down and, and, and keep working hard. So, you know, I, I think that the hardest thing for some people is, is just getting started. And, and, you know, if you haven't seen that first success yet, it is sticking with it. But um, you know, if you, if you try to keep a positive outlook and, and you, you can see that, you know, maybe um, you know, you got to wear a different Jersey in practice or, or you got, you know, got a little opportunity here and, and, just swallowing the ego, even if you, you're expecting to be somewhere somewhere else, at least, you know, celebrate that you're not where you were a couple of days ago and, and and keep grinding. For sure. And I want to backtrack a little bit here because you mentioned the rigorous, or rigorous academic schedule at your college. Um, so how did you balance the, you know, school, uh, hockey, a social life? And were there any, you know, mental health things that came with that as far as like anxiety or stress? And, and how did you manage those? Yeah, for sure. Um, you know, I, I am happy to, to tell you that I, I had a good bit of anxiety that I struggled with. Um, and actually, uh, our university, like, like a lot of Canadian universities had a free service, um, for counseling and, and, you know, it, 
after you do a little bit of research, it's it's actually pretty simple. You know, there's there's somewhere you can go, and it's a walk-in situation where where you sit down and and uh, you know they they call your name and, and somebody chats with you about whatever you want to talk about. And um, you know, struggling with mental health uh, as an athlete, I think one of the things that everybody wants to do is is say it's fine or say it's manageable or or say that they you know they can handle this. And uh, you know, myself, I didn't think that it, you know it was a a problem. Um, you know, so severe that I, I needed to to see somebody. But I, I kind of just said, well, why don't I try it out and and see? And and if, if if it's not helpful, I won't go again. There's just the fact that there was no financial burden for me was um, was helpful for for going the first time. And and then you know I got in there and and they got like coloring books before you go and you know I'm sitting there just just like waiting to get in coloring and I'm like I feel better already like you know I just just the fact that I set time aside for for my mental health because yeah the the, the schedule was rigorous you know it was it was six courses uh you know four of them had labs and one of them had a tutorial so you know it was it was probably more than double some of some of my classmates or sorry some of my teammates uh time commitment and um yeah sometimes you know I had I had to miss practice because I was behind in a class or, or I really wasn't getting the material. I was a big class guy. Like, um, I, I wasn't great about, you know, putting in a million hours to the library, but I, I always tried to go to all my lectures, um, and, and be there for all my classes. And so sometimes I, I had to miss practice to do that. And then, and then I'd be ca- playing catch up, you know, with the coach and, you know, what can I do to make this better? And, you know, he wants to see me in the gym. He wants to see me, um, you know, maybe I get a classmate to, to take notes for me if, if I miss, um, uh, practice that day uh, last week, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, I would say getting that mental health support, um, you know, was super valuable. And I, I almost wish I'd done it sooner, but I just kind of wanted to think that I had everything I needed in my toolbox um, to handle it myself. And then I learned that there were a lot of things that I could have been doing to make life easier for myself. Yeah. And I think, especially as an athlete, you know, sometimes with a physical injury, you don't always want to say anything because it's like, you know, it'll get better. My body will heal itself, but mental health is so different. And that first step is so big. And was it, was it just being able to communicate with someone or, you know, what were some of those tips that actually helped you relieve that anxiety? Yeah. You know, um, I guess being present was, was a big part of it. You know, I, I let my mind wander and I, and I kind of beat myself up when, when things are going badly, like, um, you know, like I say, I'm not an early bird. I'm, I'm not a, a night owl. I, I do a lot of napping. So, uh, you know, sometimes I'd be like, you know, I, I must be lazy. I must, I must have no work ethic that I'm, you know, uh, t- spending this time sleeping or, you know, I, I'm behind on this class. And, you know, I was, I was only at practice for an hour and a half today you know, a lot like I, I probably spent that much time on my phone. I could have easily gotten this assignment done and I didn't. So obviously I have no work ethic. And then just kind of addressing that, you know, you need to set time aside for, for leisure. You need to set time aside for, for relaxing. You need to set time, time aside to, to sleep as much as you need to sleep. If you, if you need to sleep, you know, 10 hours instead of eight hours, because, you know, you're, you're under a lot of stress, then, then, then so be it. So I think just accepting that, um, I was doing my best, even if on paper there were there were times when I, it looked like I wasn't. Um, so just letting yourself off the hook, I guess, was a big one. And I want to touch on the mental health thing didn't really come out until recently, especially for males. So 
what were your feelings and emotions towards going and talking to someone and getting your feelings out? Were you possibly a little bit scared at the beginning um, until after, like you said, that you did feel good with the coloring books and everything else? <laughs> um, was there, were your emotions, you know, scared, frightened, or, you know, maybe the guys aren't going to think that this is cool type of thing or any of that? Yeah. You know, I think you, we have a lot of, uh, everybody wants to, to say the right thing when they're sort of under the microscope. So I would have happily told anybody beforehand that, you know, that the mental health was important and should be taken seriously, but it just wasn't something that would affect me. And, you know, it's okay if, if you struggle with that, but, but I don't because I'm healthy. And like, like, uh, like Sean said, you know, I, I'm ready to play. This isn't something that's stopping me. So I think just getting over the fact that, um, that, that uh, even if you're not um, completely debilitated, you know, you could be doing a lot better. So uh, I think just accepting that that mental health is kind of a spectrum, right? It's not like a, I'm good or I'm not, uh, you know, you could always be doing better and you could always be doing worse. And, and uh, it turned out I could have been doing a lot better. So I think just accepting that, um, you know, I, I was fortunate enough to go before I was at, at a breaking point, but I'm confident I would have gotten a lot further into the hole before I, you know, was actually willing to admit I was at a breaking point. Um, but just going the first time and realizing how helpful it was and, you know, I probably wasn't even planning on telling anybody uh, after I went the first time, you know, I was, I'll go once, I'll see how it is. And, and nobody has to know, you know, it's a free service. I walk in, you know, there'd be no record of me being there almost. And then after I went, uh, you know, I was like, well, I got to keep coming back because this is great. Yeah. And another thing I think is, it's almost like you've learned another tool. Like you, you went young enough that, you know, things aren't always going to be smooth through your life. There's going to be more adversity. There's gonna be more things you have to overcome. And now you have some of those tools to kind of realize how to be present and how to help yourself through those, right? Totally, yeah. So once uh, once college and hockey and your engineering degree were over, you had a choice to make about what to do with your life. And I, uh, I think a little wrench got thrown in that plan somehow and you ended up at a bobsleigh tryout. Uh, have you ever even seen the sport before? And what was that tryout like? I mean, I watch cool runnings like every other little kid, but Aside from that, no, I, I didn't really have any idea what I was getting into. Um, I, I went to the RBC training ground, which is, you know, very uh, basic sport testing that, the, you know, the RBC team tours the country. And I think they ran like four tests. Uh, I think it was like a sprint and a, a jump and, um, you know, you deadlift against uh, like a force meter. And then there's a beep test and that happened to go well. So then I went to sort of round two and there was a few more tests and then uh you know, there were some, you know, some sport recruiters for, for national teams out watching and uh, the, the bobsleigh recruiter approached me and she said, you know, you should give this a shot. And I said, for sure, you know, I'm, I'm not going to turn down an opportunity to, to, you know, succeed in another sport. I know that the, the door for hockey is probably closing and I don't want to retire to the nine to five just yet. So I'll give this a shot. And then they invited me out to Calgary um, a couple months later and I got to try the sport for a week and I was hooked. So you just went to like a generic sport tryout, like, and there yeah. were random sports there? Or how did you even find out about that? So uh, when the Olympics are on, uh, usually it's actually more the Summer Olympics, but um, uh, you know, when the Olympics are on TV, one of the things they advertise is this, this RBC training ground. And it's this, this opportunity for all these recruiters for, for what we call second sports. So things like bobsleigh, things like uh, rowing, um, sailing, things where speed skating, um, things where there are a lot of successful athletes who didn't grow up dreaming about doing it. 
um, these recruiters come out and they just look at your numbers on, you know, how fast can this guy sprint 30 meters? How high can this guy jump? How strong is this guy? Let's give him a shot and see. And, um, you know, actually when they, when they first approached me, they, they, uh, because it's Bobsleigh Canada skeleton, it's all one organization, the two sports. And so I was like, yeah, I would love to try skeleton. And they were like, well, actually you're way too big for that. You're going to have to be a bobsledder. And I said, sure. We're like, let me try, give me down this thing. What is, what is training like for that? You know, especially in the summers because it's so specific. Uh, and I'm from Salt Lake City, Utah. So we had the uh, <clears throat> the Olympics in 2002 there. Um, and I know that they have in the summer, basically bobsleigh with roller wheels on the bottom. So they can practice like that. But that's obviously very specific. So what, what do you do for workouts, like a lot of explosive work? And then how do you practice with the sleigh without having the sleigh? Is it similar to that where you do it with the wheels on it? Totally. Yeah. So there's, there's only three tracks in, in North America that are open right now. Calgary has been shut down um, just like a budget thing and they, they need to rebuild it. So there's just Whistler um, and then Salt Lake city and Lake Placid. And if you're not in one of those three places uh, you can't do the sport, um, which makes it tricky. So training, you know, uh, it looks a lot like uh, like a sprinter's training. So we do lot, lots of track workouts, lots of explosive stuff, plyometrics, um, but then a lot of Olympic lifting, um, in part because that's part of our, our testing and, and we're scored on that, but also because you just have to be strong and explosive. So, you know, we, we do lots of squatting, lots of power cleaning, uh, snatching, that kind of thing. Um, and then, yeah, you want to get as much training as you can, as close to pushing a sled as you can. Um, and there's, there's no, there's no way to replace pushing the sled down the track because there's just so many things going on. Um, yeah, if you, if, if you live in one of those cities, um, where you can, where you can push it in the summer, you know, that that's close and that's really helpful. Uh, so some athletes do move out to Calgary, um, to train there and, and use the indoor facility called the ice house. I think there's three or four of those in the world. Uh, that's the only one in North America. And that's probably the next best thing where you can just get, you know, a bunch of reps that you otherwise wouldn't be able to get. So that's kind of the, the holy grail of training for us is, is how much time can you spend in the ice house? And then aside from that, you know, you're pushing a prowler sled, you're, you're running with a band, you're, you're towing, um, you know, like a lighter sprinting tow sled. And then there's some people who have these, yeah, um, basically sleds on wheels that, that you can push uh, here and there. But, um, you know, even those are tricky because you can't push them down a hill um, or, or you can't push them, you know, with, with somebody else or they, they don't go straight or or you can't be wearing your, your bobsleigh spikes while you're pushing them. So there's, there's things you can't reproduce, but you want to come as close as you can. So it's, it's obviously a team sport, but as the man who's in charge of, you know, pushing the sleigh and you're not the pilot, once, once you jump in, like, are you along for the ride? How can you affect the outcome once, <laughs> once you're done pushing? Uh, you can definitely affect the outcome, but uh, only negatively. You are basically, you know, if you could be replaced by a sack of potatoes, that would be ideal, but you can't. <laughs> um, so you want to, like, I'm famously inflexible. So, uh, you know, they, sometimes I, I look like a big sail in the back, and, and that's not good. You want to be as aerodynamic as you can, and you want to make sure you don't move because, um, you know, this thing, if it's not in a corner and, and you're on a straightaway, it is, it, it's sliding every which way, like, um, the pilots make it look good on, on the World Cup, but uh, it is very easy to make that thing go really squirrely, uh, you know, wash the back end out, that kind of thing. And even readjusting yourself, trying to, you know, get a little bit lower, grab, 
grab the handles a bit differently. If, if you shift your body weight, you could throw the whole back end out. Uh, so one of the things we try to do is, is we only try to readjust our position when we're experiencing the pressure from, from the corner that kind of uh, puts the sled on a line and makes it a little harder to, to knock off course. And then how does the seating arrangement work in, I guess, the two and the four person sled? Yeah, so in the two man, uh, it's basically like a real uncomfortable toe touch um, where you're pulling yourself as far into the toe touch as you can. And um, somebody really rude is jostling you from every which way as you go down the track. So it can be a little hard on the back. And then in the four man, uh, you're a little bit more like sardines. So depending on how you ride, um, you know, you probably got somebody in your lap with your head and somebody else's back um, or, 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 or some variation of that. I, I ride what we call cannonball. Um, so my feet are, you know, pretty close to, to my ass and, and I'm ba basically sitting like I'm about to jump in, into a pool doing a cannonball, uh, with my head tucked into my knees. Uh, and I, I was riding in the, uh, the number two position on the format this year. So you guys get pretty comfortable in there. Oh yeah. You get friendly. How, how long does this thing last typically? Are there, are there like different, uh, ranges for races? And then I got to know like max speed, how fast are you guys going? For sure. Yeah. So that all varies track to track. Uh, I think the longest track this season, uh, was St. Moritz. Um, it's a bit of a special case because it's, it's a natural track. Uh, so they, they build it from scratch every year. So, the, how long it takes to get down can change at that track. But I think this year it was about a minute and eight seconds would be the longest. And then the shortest tracks were about 50 seconds. Um, and then top speed varies too. I think the, the slowest top speed this year would have been, um, about 130 kilometers an hour. And then uh, we hit 150 in Whistler this year, which is the fastest track in the world. Wow. That's got to be fun. And I'm thinking about it. Uh, there's obviously a big advantage to going earlier on, right? Because this track is getting cut up and it, it's not like you can Zamboni down the roller coaster, right? Like, Absolutely. Yeah. You're is there some on. sort of seating where you get to pick when you go in the day? Like, I think it's a huge, is it a huge advantage to go? It is a on? huge advantage. Yeah, yeah. actually um, a, a big part of, um, of why uh, Korea was successful in, in 2018, they won a silver medal in the four man. And, and a big part of that was, was exactly that the seating because the ice gets real chewed up as, as sleds go down and, and things can affect that differently. Like, um, you know, if it's a really sunny day, then, then that's going to be a lot more drastic than, you know, if it were, if it were cold and cloudy and, and you know, like minus 20, um, you know, the, the track would get beat up more slowly. Uh, it would still get beat up, but, but more gradually than if it were, you know, sunny and, and one degree. And uh, think, uh, they just experienced yeah. that at Lake Tahoe. I don't know. You said you're an astronaut. <laughs> so we just watched that game and they had, to, they had to shut it down for eight hours because they weren't expecting the sun in California. Yeah, weird. I don't know, the nerve of the sun showing up that day. I, I can't believe it. <laughs> So you talk about all the testing that goes into everything and uh, obviously you guys recreate that every year. Um, you know, you're trying to probably improve your scores and see where you match up against your teammates or people in similar positions as you. And last year, testing numbers were not what you expected and you were a little bit worried about making the team. Why do you think you had bad testing numbers and what did you do to turn it around? Yeah, you know, I was a bit new to the sport last year and I didn't really know what to expect as far as testing numbers. Uh, but I... I um, you know, my performance was good enough to make the the, the last sled that they named the team to. So I, I was on Canada four last year. Um, and then, you know, based on those testing numbers, I knew that uh, 
every year as we get closer to the Olympics, you get more and more um, top caliber athletes. And so the team gets harder to make um, in an Olympic year would be the hardest to make. And then the year after the games would be the easiest. And then every year as you approach the games, it gets harder and harder. And so I knew going into this season that um, if I push what I pushed last year, I, I wouldn't be making the team because I, I knew a couple of the guys and what they were capable of and, and that everybody else was coming back. And so I, I knew I needed to make a big jump. And, um, you know, there was no moment this summer or, or, or spring, um, this past summer or spring where, where I said, okay, you know, I'm, I'm good now. I, I used to be not so good and, and now I'm good. Um, I think I was just really committed to the process and, and working on it and, and trying to get a little bit better every day. And, um, you know, those things add up. Uh, I, I was, you know, more disciplined than I had been in the past. I can still be a lot more disciplined, but I, I was more disciplined than I had been. And uh, the training paid off and, and I went out and tested uh, a whole lot better than I had before. How do you like your, your chances of making the Olympic team? Obviously, I don't, you know, you're a very humble guy, but, um, you know, we're coming up on it. Is the, the, will this next tryout be for the Olympic team? Yeah, for sure. Um, next year will be, will be a lot more testing just in that, you know, this year we showed up uh, for, for testing at the end of September. And then uh, after two weeks, the team was named. And then, you know, there was some, some possible shuffling of, of, of a few guys, you know, between teams, I think, two or three guys got to switch teams throughout the year. Um, but in an Olympic year, we know that, you know, the team will be named and then it'll be anybody's game as to who, who ends up on that sled and everybody will get a shot at, at, you know, getting to be the guy. And so it'll just be a, a longer process before you sort of know where you fall. Um, yeah. So you just, you, the work won't be done until you're at the games and that's, that's about uh, all, all we can be sure of. Yeah, that's how it goes for athletes. You know, you can you can make a team in training camp, but then if you aren't playing well in practice, you're not going to be in the game. So, 100%. Um, and then, you know, we, we assume you have a little bit of an in and things are kind of crazy with COVID, but do you think we have a good chance of having the 2021 summer and the 2022 Winter Olympic Games? Yeah, you know, I, I think they're going to go ahead. I, I think that there's going to be a, a lot of hurdles. And uh, the only thing I worry about is, you know, a, a big outbreak either right before or, or during, and, and maybe things getting canceled during. But um, I think a lot of these sports, uh, particularly some of the niche winter sports have proven that, you know, they're able to have their international competition um, despite COVID. Like bobsleigh was able to go ahead with, uh, with their world championships just last week. And, and, and so was skeleton. Uh, the, the luge season has been a go. I think Alpine skiing has been, you know, pr proven they can have success. It's just a matter of if, uh, everybody's able to to sort of maintain that with a with a bigger group. So I'm sure there'll be a lot of testing. I, I think I had 16 COVID tests over the course of our seven week season. So yeah. I think that you know that'll probably pale in comparison to to how much testing gets done um, in and around the Olympics. But I think they will go ahead with it. I'm curious to see too if that'll open up. I mean, we've seen it a little bit in the NHL, and it's easy for us to compare that too because that's what we watch and talk about all the time. But uh, it's opened up a little bit more doors for people that may may not have gotten an opportunity because, you know, if someone does test positive for COVID, then you kind of need someone there to be an alternate to step in and, and take their place. So, uh, you know, hopefully it'll give more people opportunity to be a part of the Olympics. Um, and me and Sean are obviously big sports fans, so we. We're, we're rooting for uh, the Olympics. Obviously, we'll be rooting for you, but we're big USA guys being from the States. <laughs> um, so we wish you nothing but the best of luck. 
uh, we'll be following along your journey and we, we can't thank you enough for coming on. It's been awesome to hear about your process and your life story. And, uh, you know, you're still very young. So uh, best of luck to you the rest of the way. Hey, thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to this episode of Adversity University. You can follow more news about Adversity University on our social media pages. Our Instagram handle is adversity underscore university. Our Twitter handle is adversity underscore UNIV. And our Facebook page is Adversity University. If you know of any high-level athlete or professional that has an interesting story of overcoming adversity and you think they should share it, you can email us at adversityuniversitytalkshow at gmail.com. You can also use that email if you are interested in becoming a sponsor for Adversity University. We look forward to bringing our listeners more content from interesting guests weekly, so stay tuned on social media to see who could be next and what our past guests are up to now.